Let us read Psalm 11. The Lord, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, and we do rejoice in the fact that we can gather together as the people of God. We can worship you this morning. We can fellowship with one another. And Lord, we just pray that you would bless the remainder of our time together today. Lord, we pray especially now as we are opening your word and considering what the scriptures have to say for us, that you would minister to each of our hearts. Lord, that you would continue the great work that you're doing in your children, the work of transforming us and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're grateful for every person here. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to each of us and minister to us today. Lord, we pray that if any have joined us who do not yet know you, they've never put their faith in you alone to be their God and to be their Savior. Lord, we pray that you would change that even now. So, Lord, please minister to us through your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat. Who said we don't have real winters here in Santa Barbara? I mean, this is freezing outside, right? No, it's so beautiful here, and it is nice to have a little change, though, and have some cloud coverage today. So, Psalm chapter 11 Y'all remember those Southwest airline commercials, the ones that said you want to get away? A lot of funny commercials that they came out with. And um, I think that, that, that statement, you want to get away, really does a good job of depicting the mood that we find here in Psalm chapter 11. We see the idea there in verse 1 right up front. Uh, it says, flee like a bird to your mountain. Now, let's see who this takes back. But when I was in high school, Justin, you just alluded back to when you were a child. I'll do the same thing. When I was in high school, there was a song by Nelly Furtado called, I'm Like a Bird. Anybody remember that? I'm like a bird, I want to fly away. Well, maybe you felt that way before. Maybe in your life, you've been faced with challenges or circumstances that were honestly quite overwhelming and, and it just made you want to flee. It made you want to run away and escape. That is the counsel that David is getting here in the opening verses of Psalm chapter 11. This was in fact the temptation that he was facing in this Psalm. A temptation to just flee, to run, to escape, to get away. Psalm 11 then is written for the worshiper whose world is crashing down on them and all that they want to do is run away. I titled this morning's sermon, When You Feel Like Running Away. Now, like so many of the Psalms, this Psalm was originally composed by David 
And later it was set to music and it was incorporated into the worship life of God's people, the Israelites. We know that because of the superscription. It says to the choir master of David. And so again, the leader of the corporate worship of God's people would have taken this psalm and utilized it for their singing in their worship. Now, one unique thing about Psalm 11 is that unlike most of the Psalms, this is not a prayer. David is not directly praying to God. Rather, it's a poem that David composes. But it's a poem that is a psalm or a poem of confidence or trust. So in this psalm, David is expressing his trust in the Lord alone. He says as much right at the start of it. The opening line he writes in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. It's another way of saying, in the Lord, I put my trust. I'm trusting in the Lord. This idea of taking refuge is the Lord here being pictured sort of like a fortress that the righteous could flee to to find safety and security in a troubling situation. Now, uh, we're only in Psalm 11, but we've encountered this exact same language already. David has multiple times talked about taking refuge in the Lord in the Psalter. And this is a great reminder for us that the life of faith is not about some one-off decision that we make. At some point in our lives, oh yeah, yeah, I I believe in Jesus, I'm going to follow the Lord. Rather, the life of faith is about a continual turning to or looking to God as your deliverer through all of the different seasons of your life, through every changing circumstance, through every new challenge that you're faced with, it's a turning back to the Lord again and saying, Lord, I'm taking refuge in you. Lord, I'm trusting in you. Lord, my hope is in you. Lord, you are the one that's going to deliver me. David throughout the Psalter is encountering so many different challenges. He's throughout the Psalter writing in so many different seasons of his life. And yet he's coming back to this central idea over and over and over again. Challenge comes I flee to the Lord. He is my God. He is the one that I trust. He is the one that I take refuge in. That's what the life of faith looks like. Now, after David makes this statement that it's the Lord that he takes refuge in, notice with me in verse one that he turns to a group of people who are advising him to flee like a bird. He says, how can you say to my soul? The word say, the verb say rather, is in the plural And so David here is speaking to a group of people and he's saying to them, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountains? Now we don't know who this group of people is exactly because the Psalm doesn't tell us, but it's likely that David is being counseled by his advisors or perhaps just by some of his close friends that things are so bad, that things are so terrible that David needs to just flee. He needs to take off and get out. What's interesting is we don't know with certainty how much of the following material belongs to this group of advisors and how much of it belongs to David. Um, In the Hebrew language, their equivalent of quotation marks only tell us where the beginning of a person's statements are, not the ending. So obviously when we're writing in English, we use quotation marks to kind of distinguish the whole 
statement that somebody is making that we're attributing to a a, a certain voice. But in Hebrew, it's not like that. We just get a clue that a statement's beginning, but we don't know definitively when it ends. And so context helps us to determine that. Now, there's different opinions about how much of verses 1 through 3 belong to this group of counselors, but I believe it's best to understand all of it as belonging to the words of this group. So David says to them, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is all of what they're saying to David. They're telling him to run. They're telling him that his enemies have basically cocked the gun, right? The bow is bent. The arrows are ready to fly. The foundations are crumbling. David, get out. That's their advice. Simply put, their counsel is flee. Get out of Dodge. Run to the hills, David. Go to higher ground. If you think about it, a bird takes off to the higher grounds of the mountains to escape the arrows of the hunter. And that's the picture here. That's what David is being counseled to do. Take off, get to the higher ground, get out of range of the missiles of the enemies. So David could take refuge in the mountains or he could take refuge in the Lord. He's already told us what his choice is. He is going to take refuge in the Lord. Now, it's solid reasoning that his friends are giving to him, right? If everything is really that perilous, if there's nothing left to do, if the arrow really is ready to fly at David, why would he stay? He needs to run. He needs to escape. The enemies have gained the upper hand, we read. They've readied their weapons. They're about to take this shot at David, the upright in heart, so he needs to run. The foundations are destroyed. There's nothing left that he can do. Verse 3 helps us to understand more fully the gravity of the situation. You could underline that little phrase, if the foundations are destroyed. This psalm, Psalm 11, really is a psalm for a catastrophic season. Okay, this isn't a psalm for, man, I've had a tough two weeks at work. I'm going to flee to Cabo. Okay, this isn't that kind of a situation. This is a catastrophic crisis that David is facing. This is like the foundations of society are crumbling. And if the righteous don't hit the eject button, they're going to be completely overwhelmed by the godless. They are doomed. The same expression is used in a lament for Egypt over in the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel writes this about Egypt in Ezekiel 30 verse 4. He's prophesying and he says, A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush. When the slain fall in Egypt, and her wealth is carried away, and her foundations are torn down. So in that context in Ezekiel, this expression really is speaking of just utter collapse of society. All of the institutions being destroyed. Egypt being overthrown. And this is the sort of threat that David is facing right now. Society is crumbling around him. Imagine, this is going to take a lot of imagination, but imagine a society where the godless have taken control of all the major institutions. Things like government 
education, corporations, media, technology. And you can imagine the sense of angst and despair that the righteous would feel in a time like that. Going, what, what can we do? We, we're powerless. If the godless have control of everything, what can we do? What are our options? And Christians can feel te- tempted to flee to safer ground. We could say, I don't know about you, but I'm headed to Texas. We're going out there. We're going to be safe. We're going to take care of ourselves. But in the psalm, and when things are this bad, the righteous quickly realize there is nowhere they can run to. Well, what can the righteous do in a situation like that? They're completely stuck. The wicked have total control over everything. And it seems as if God is aloof and God doesn't care. And so what do we do? Do we run? Well, we can't. The situation of the psalm is probably more like If you were to imagine being a Christian today in a place like North Korea, maybe, or China, or somewhere in the Middle East, where the entire nation, the entire society is set up against your faith, or imagine being in the Soviet Union, maybe 60 years ago or so, 70 years ago, or imagine being a solid, faithful Christian in Nazi Germany at the time that Adolf Hitler was implementing the final solution being like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and many others and just saying, what can we do in a situation like this when the foundations are destroyed? What can we as the righteous do? Or imagine growing up in the projects where gangs and drugs are prevalent and there's no way out for you. Your family doesn't have money. You can't escape what's around you and the situation is either join with them or become their target. What could a righteous person do in a situation like that where the ungodly or the wicked have complete control. What do you do? Where do you turn? Well, this brings us to the second half of the psalm, verses four through seven. David says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. What David does in this psalm is essentially David looks up. And when he looks up, he sees that the Lord is seated on his throne. Now, there was no temple in Israel at this time. The temple would, of course, be built by David's son, Solomon. But David is looking up to God seated on his throne in the heavenly temple, the true temple. And as David looks up and sees that spiritual reality, his confidence is shored up. His confidence is secured. This reminds us that there is always more going on than what meets the eye. The eyes of faith are constantly taking the spiritual realm into their calculations. See, from the eyes of David's advisors, they looked out and all they could see was catastrophe. All they could see was, we're about to be overrun. overrun. We're about to be destroyed. We are completely hopeless. But David could take into account the spiritual realm. And David could realize that there is always more going on than what meets your eyes. 
Some of you might remember the story of the prophet Elisha in the Old Testament. This is a story in 2 Kings chapter 6. This is a great one to read to your children. So the Syrians are coming because the king of Syria does not like Elisha. So imagine having a monarch, a powerful one at that, who's just targeting you. Like I'm coming after you and I'm going to bring a whole army to do it. And so Elisha and his servant, who's a young guy, Elijah's a little bit older. Um, they're in this city and the Syrians completely surround the city. They're trapped in on every side. And Elisha's young servant comes to him and he is completely freaked out, right? He, he's basically in the first three verses of Psalm 11. He's just looking around going, the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? Everything is a loss. We're trapped on every side. And Elisha looks at his servant and he says to him, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What? I can just imagine his servant looking at him like it's me and an old guy. There's an entire army out there with chariots and horses. And what do you mean those who are with us are more than those who are with them? So Elijah continues, he prays and he says this. So this is awesome too, because this is a prayer that he's going to pray out loud in front of his servant as a rebuke. It's awesome. Really great technique here. He says, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So there's this entire army of angelic beings that are surrounding the Syrians there was more going on than what could meet the eye. Through human eyes, Elisha's servant just looked out and saw the enemy. But Elisha, with spiritual eyes, was able to say, the Lord and his army are with us. Or remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Armed soldiers come to capture our Lord. What is he going to do? It's him and a band of despondent disciples, fishermen, converted to Jedi soldiers, Jedi warriors. Peter freaks out, takes matters into his own hands, pulls out a sword, chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus looks at him and says this, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? There's more going on. Jesus is like, it's, it's not about just what you see, Peter. If God is with us, we're going to be okay. So what is David doing here? Well, David's reminding himself of two very important things. Number one is that God rules over all of creation, right? This is the, the point of seeing the Lord seated on a throne in heaven he didn't just see the Lord seated on a throne over an earthly kingdom. He sees God seated on his heavenly throne. God is in control of the nations of the earth. God rules sovereignly over all of his creation. Not a sparrow falls from the sky without the father's full knowledge of it. And so David reminds himself of this. God is in control. And the second thing is that God is present and active in this current situation. Now, where am I getting that from? It comes from that expression that says of God that his eyes see. His eyes see. Now, that expression is in contrast to what we so often read about the wicked. 
In fact, if you just go back one chapter, look back in your Bible to chapter 10, Ryan preached on this last week. Here's verse 11 of chapter 10, speaking about the wicked. He says in his heart, so the wicked say in their heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face. And here's the key, he will never see it. God won't see it. We can get away with these things. We can conceal our sinfulness. We can conceal our wickedness. God won't see any of it. David doesn't agree with that. David says his eyes see. God is present. God is active. God is paying attention. Nothing escapes the all-seeing eyes of God. Even though God hasn't acted yet to stop the wicked, it doesn't mean that God is asleep at the wheel. Commentator Derek Kidner put it this way, his stillness is not inertia, but concentration. So God is sitting on his throne. He's still, he's not acting yet, but he's concentrating. He's focused. He's seeing everything that's happening. Every good deed, every evil deed, every thought, every scheme, every plan, every intention of the heart of man. Here's Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing escapes God's attention. We cannot hide anything from him. We might think that we can. And this is the folly. This is the foolishness of us as human beings. We think that if we do certain things and we hide it, that, that somehow it's truly hidden. Yeah, we might hide it from other people. Your spouse may never know. Your parents may never know. Your boss may never know. The IRS may never find out. But God sees it. God knows. And God is watching. And not only does he see everything that every single person does, but it's all a test. And it's all revealing who we truly are. That's what David goes on to say. Not only do God's eyes see, but look at verse 4, they test the children of man. Now that word test in 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5, is a word that comes from a person who tests precious metals. They assay the metals like gold, silver, things like that. And of course, the process to do that is that they would put these precious metals into fire and the fire would purify the metal and the fire would destroy the impurities or the dross that was on these metals. But notice in David's metaphor here that it's not the fire that is testing. It is the eyes of the Lord that are testing people. Through trials, the righteous are being tested. Through trials, we learn that our faith is being tested and the genuineness of it is being revealed. That's what trials are doing in the lives of believers. This is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So for the righteous, God's scrutiny 
is revealing, he's testing us, and it's revealing to God and to us and to the world the genuineness of our faith. That's what trials are doing. But for the wicked, God's scrutiny, God's all-seeing eyes, reveals their evil, and it arouses his righteous anger. Look at the way it's put in verse 5. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So God is on his throne here in Psalm 11. God is seeing the plans of the wicked, seeing the things that they're doing, the things that they're threatening to do, and God's righteous indignation is boiling over. And therefore the wicked are consumed by the fire of God's judgment. Verse 6 is such a heavy verse. It says, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, people talk of hellfire and brimstone preachers as being old-fashioned and out of touch. Of course, there's some truth to that, I suppose. But we have to at least admit this. There is scriptural warrant for preaching that way. Um, This word sulfur Um, is the word brimstone. Brimstone is the kind of old school word for sulfur. And so in verse six, it talks about hellfire essentially and brimstone raining down on the wicked. This verse, verse six, is an allusion back to Genesis chapter 19, verse 24, and the destruction of the ancient city, Sodom and Gomorrah where God literally rained fire down from heaven onto this city to destroy it because of their wickedness, because of their ungodliness and their, uh, the way that they detested righteousness. And so God judged them and it was a swift and a powerful judgment. And so David here, as he's reminding himself of Genesis 19, he's aware that God's judgment of the wicked, God's judgment of those who love violence is not hypothetical. Or theoretical, like, oh yeah, maybe God somewhere at some point judges people. No, no, no. This is real. This is actual. This is imminent. And this could be instantaneous. In just a moment, as David looks to the Lord and trusts in the Lord, God could step in and deliver him. He could judge the wicked just like he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Although they've got the bowstring drawn and the arrow is pointed, God could judge them, wipe them out, and deliver David. And so David says with great confidence, this must have been shoring up his heart in this situation, that God could judge them and deliver him. Now, it's easy to listen to this. I know it's easy for me to read a passage like this and go, well, I'm not like those people. I don't love violence. I'm not trying to kill people. I'm I'm not attacking people. I'm not trying to destroy society. I'm not trying to do any of that stuff. So this isn't about me. There's no threat of divine judgment for a guy like me just doing the things that I'm doing. But it's so important for us to be reminded that God's judgment is reserved for all evildoers of every type. Romans 1, 18 says it this way. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, here's the key word, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When you read the Hebrews, the the authors of the Old Testament especially, 
You'll notice that in an ultimate sense, all human beings are separated into two camps, the wicked and the righteous. That's it. That's the ultimate separation according to biblical wisdom and categories. It's not like there is some sort of a um, spectrum, you could say, where it's like on this end, you've got uh, totally evil, kind of evil, bad, sort of bad, okay, kind of good, pretty decent, good, really good, perfect. They don't have categories like that. Ultimately speaking, it is you're either in the camp of the wicked or the ungodly, or you're in the camp of the righteous or the godly. It's that simple. And the problem for every human being, whether you're the one who loves violence, whether you're the one here in Psalm 11 that's out to kill people and destroy people, or you're just the one who's greedy and covetous, self-centered, rude and calloused, you love to gossip and slander. It doesn't matter. That puts all of us into the camp of the ungodly. See, the problem for all of us is that none of us have loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And what's more, none of us have perfectly loved our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so apart from God's grace, apart from divine rescue, Apart from God providing a sacrifice for our sins, none of us are righteous. None of us are upright in heart. And according to verse seven, that means none of us get to see God. None of us behold his face. And that, friends, is why we all need grace. We need forgiveness. We need a righteousness that's not our own, that comes to us from the outside. And of course, this is what the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was all about. That the Hebrew people, people like David, could in faith lay their hands on an animal and God would transfer their sins to that animal. And then that animal that was spotless would be sacrificed and the blood of that sacrifice would atone for their sins until God's ultimate lamb, his own son, Jesus Christ, would come to this earth and once and for all provide a sacrifice in his own blood to remove all of the sin of God's people for all of time. And therefore, even though we don't live in perfect righteousness, we are deemed perfectly righteous because by faith we get a righteousness that's outside of us. It comes to us through Christ himself and that's what makes us righteous. So I would say to you this morning that if you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a murderer to be worthy of God's judgment. You don't have to be a terrible person by earthly standards to be a person who will receive God's judgment. You must flee to Jesus. You must put your trust in him and him alone. And if you do, you get to share in David's confidence that at the end of the day, when all scores are settled, God will judge the wicked and he will deliver you because you'll belong to the righteous. This is David's confidence as the psalm ends. God's going to do that. He's going to judge the wicked and he's going to deliver the righteous. Why? Well, verse 7 tells us. It says, For or because the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. 
Why is that the way it's all going to work out? Simple answer is this, because that's consistent with God's character. The true God, not the God that we invent in our own minds, not the God that people hope is there, the true God, the real God who created the heavens and the earth, the real God that we have to give an account to is righteous, perfectly righteous. That's why he loves righteous deeds. God loves and honors righteousness because God himself is righteous. Notice then that morality flows out of the character of God. Let me say this differently. The standard for what is right and wrong flows out of who God is himself. And that's why it's such an insult when people call evil good and good evil. And we see a lot of that in our society. We look at things that God says are evil and we say, no, 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 that's good. And we do the opposite. That is so terrible and that's such an affront because we're not simply breaking God's laws, as bad as that is. We're not just breaking his laws. What we're actually doing is slandering his character. When we call evil good or we call good evil, we're slandering God's character. We're actually calling God a moral monster. I mean, how unbelievable is that when you stop and think about it? Because all of these rules, if you will, all of the laws are flowing out of who he is. And this is why this is such an affront to God himself. Therefore, it is the upright who shall behold his face. That's how the psalm ends. It's those whose hearts have come to see the beauty of God's righteousness rather than resenting it. Those are the ones to whom God's presence will be given. C.S. Lewis and many others have remarked that for the non-Christian, heaven would actually be a kind of hell. And what they mean by that is that for the non-Christian, they don't love God. For the non-Christian, his character actually offends them. So for them to be in heaven, it would actually be tortuous to them. Why, why would they want to be there with a God that they don't love? Why would they want to be there where a, a form of righteousness exists that they resent, that they hate, that they loathe? It would be torture. It is only those who by God's grace have been born again that begin to delight in God, that begin to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. And so it follows that it's only those who have been born again, only those whose hearts are being transformed after God's own heart that would actually enjoy being in heaven for all of eternity, worshiping, loving, dwelling with God. At the end of the day, all people will get what they desire most. Let me say that again. At the end of the day, all people will get what they desire most. Those who by God's grace desire God most will get him. And those who don't, won't. And so I'd ask you here this morning, have you been born again? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God's one and only son? Is he the king of your life? Is he the Lord of your heart? Are you following him? Are you pursuing him? Are you with every new day and with every new challenge and with every new season? Are you like David here in Psalm 11 saying, you know what? It's in you, Lord, that I put my trust.
It's in you, Lord, that I take refuge. Do you delight in God's character and his righteousness? Would your life confirm that? If not, you can put your faith and trust in Jesus today. Psalm 11, as we close, is great because it doesn't just tell us what to do. It is what we should do. The psalm itself is doing what we should do. We should not flee in fear. We should stand our ground in faith and hope, waiting for our deliverer to reveal his righteousness and to come to our rescue. This is a psalm for gritty faith. This is a psalm for resilient faith. This is a psalm for a risky faith. Psalm 11 is not for a comfortable kind of fair weather, it's always 75 and sunny here type of faith. Again, this is, this is for a gritty, risky, resilient faith. The kind of faith that no matter what happens to the righteous, they look up to the Lord and they draw their strength and their confidence in him alone and they entrust the ultimate results to God. Now, this is a psalm that some of us this morning might feel like we can apply. For others, perhaps even for the majority of us today, it might feel like it's far removed. And I, as your pastor and your brother in Christ, would just say to you, tuck it away. Keep it stored in your heart. Because I fear it may be a necessary meditation for all of us sooner and not later. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this new day that you have given to us. In the spirit of the Psalms, we declare today, this is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, I pray for us as your people that you would give to us by your grace a strong and resilient faith. Not the kind of faith that feel strong when everything's going great, but the moment there's any sort of conflict or the moment that there's any disappointment or the moment that there's anything that's outside of our control, we begin to panic, we begin to turn to the left and turn to the right and grasp after idols that we think can save us. Lord, none of that. We don't want that. We want a strong faith. We want a confident faith like King David. We want you to continue to test us and prove us and bring us to a place where no matter what comes upon us, our hearts have been trained to look up, to see you seated on your throne in heaven and to know that ultimately you will hold us fast. Lord, give us a faith like that. We can't just muster that up on our own. Even as we learned in Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of? And we're just dust, Lord. We don't have the strength to not be ruled by fear and instead be ruled by faith. But we trust this morning that by grace, your spirit can give us faith like this. We trust that by faith, your spirit can strengthen our hearts and strengthen our faith. And so, Lord, we would ask for that. Lord, we ask for that not just for ourselves. We ask for that for brothers and sisters all around the world right now that are facing circumstances that are so much more dire than ours, Lord, would you give them strong, resilient faith? Lord, would you help them to be reminded even this morning on this Lord's day that your eyes see everything, 
that ultimately, God, you are righteous. You love righteousness and you will judge wickedness. Lord, we pray that you would bless our suffering and persecuted brothers and sisters around the world with a fresh revelation of that truth today. And Lord, for us here in America, Lord, I just pray for churches all across this land that, Lord, you would continue to purify your bride, that you would make us a holy and a righteous people, a people set apart for good works, and that, Lord, we would not, again, be prone to fear, that we would not try to take matters into our own hands, but that we would be a people of faith and trust, and that you would continue to prove yourself mighty on our behalf. And, Lord, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.